0: The Mars rover Curiosity, a souped-up remote-controlled car stumbling over the Martian surface in search of signs of life right now, has some news. John Grotzinger, NASA's chief scientist on the Curiosity team, said recently that the news is one for the history books. He's had astrobiologists on the edges of their seats. Here's one of them, Dr. Lewis Dartnell, from University College London.
1: You can't blame a science, I don't think, for being excited, enthusiastic about this, what will undeniably be a groundbreaking mission. Curiosity will tell us things we've never discovered before, and it will be a very important mission for astrobiology and, and working out whether Mars ever did have life.
0: I'm Adam Smith. Welcome to Pod Academy. The full news from Curiosity finally came on the 3rd of December. Curiosity has found evidence of chlorine, sulphur and water, and of organic compounds. These are chemicals containing carbon. But Grotzinger and his colleagues at NASA cannot be sure whether the compounds really come from Mars, or whether they hitched a ride on board Curiosity all the way from Earth. I've been finding out about astrobiology, it's a field made up of astronomers, cosmologists, geologists, microbiologists and chemists who all come together to study life in the universe by extrapolating what we know about life on Earth. I started by asking Lewis Dartnell just how big finding organic molecules on Mars would be.
1: Finding organic molecules on Mars does not mean we found evidence of life. It means we found the kind of chemistry you need to make life out of. So scientifically, that is incredibly exciting. But I don't think it's the, the sort of uh, announcement that the general public has been led to believe to expect. Now, and, and that's why I think, particularly in astrobiology, when you're dealing with such potentially revolutionary discoveries, you've, I think you've got to be that extra little bit more careful about not allowing speculation to So You're not hinting at stuff before you're prepared to, to announce what you actually found.
0: If Curiosity has found organic molecules on Mars, that's big news. But it won't be little green men or women. It won't even be microscopic green people. Describing a molecule as organic is just another way of saying it's made up of carbon atoms, as life on Earth is. But it doesn't mean that Mars' organic molecules, if they exist, are created by life. Checking that would be the next step. I asked Lewis whether Curiosity could do that.
1: Well, if we're lucky, Curiosity will be able to to detect uh, another biosignature, another sign of life in the organics. And this is slightly more complicated to explain, but there's different kinds of the carbon atoms, different isotopes. Some are heavier, some are lighter. And again, through a quirk of the biochemical reactions that, that life uses to power itself and feed itself, we preferentially pick out the light carbon and leave the heavy carbon behind. So if you find... Or an organic molecule that may have been created by some kind of um, Martian cyanobacteria, some kind of Martian cell that's been growing by sunlight, you'd expect it to be enriched in light carbon, not heavy carbon. So if you see a bias in the carbon atoms, the isotopes in the organics, that again is another smoking gun. For now, these maybe discoveries
0: should not overshadow what Curiosity has actually found. And that, scientists are sure, is evidence that water once flowed on Mars, an announcement that came in September, not long after Curiosity touched down. But why are scientists so obsessed
2: with finding water beyond Earth? Water has helped sculpt the Earth, and we think, or we had thought, we'd hoped, speculated that it helped sculpt Mars. And that is very interesting because of water's critical role in life. Life on Earth is utterly reliant on water. Um, Water molecules are an incredible solvent, they're an incredibly versatile piece of of terrestrial biochemistry. And so we we think that you need water, you need it in a liquid form, if you're ever going to have living organisms.
0: This is Caleb Schaaf, Director of Astrobiology at Columbia University in New York.
2: So the fact that water really did once flow on the surface of Mars. tells you a number of things. It tells you there was plenty of water around. Now there's a lot of water we know frozen in Mars beneath the surface, but it means that at some point it was on the surface, even if only temporarily. And that also tells us something about the atmospheric conditions on Mars. So right now Mars is a pretty hostile place. The atmospheric pressure on Mars is um, less than uh, 1,000th that it is on Earth. Um, So, you know, you can't breathe on Mars. It's like a vacuum. right? It's bad news. And with a thin atmosphere like that, water quickly turns into a gas. If It's on the surface. It doesn't sit around as a liquid. So the discovery of flowing liquid water on the surface of Mars suggests that sometime in Mars' past, the atmosphere could have been different, the surface environment could have been very different, warmer, much more like that on Earth. Unlike Lewis Dartnell,
0: Caleb Scharf is not a biologist. He's an astrophysicist, putting the astro in astrobiology. It's a relatively new field and is interdisciplinary by nature. As Caleb explains, astrobiology arrived when NASA made a strategic shift
2: a few years ago. Back in the, the early 1990s, uh, NASA had this sort of this sudden revelation that that the search for life in the universe was a big and important thing. And they'd always always had that in their science program, but it really, the, the administrator at the ta- time, um, Dan Golden, uh, decided, you know what, this is what we should be doing. And I think at first people were a little bit taken aback because this was a radically different you know, approach. It, it took away some of the emphasis on human space exploration, which wasn't really going anywhere at the time and and put it on something rather different that included biology Um, but big in that picture was the idea of planetary exploration Um, and so out of that for example came the modern mars exploration program and so in that sense nasa has poured billions of dollars into really astrobiology astrobiology has become the motivating science if you will behind most of NASA's robotic exploration of the solar system that's focused on planets. If funding holds up, there will be further missions to Mars and to other places. There is discussion of um, trying to go back to Saturn um, to try to possibly land on Titan. Um, Titan is a radically different environment than any we've, we've seen, but There's a possibility that there could be some sort of life there, but it would be low temperature, different chemistry, it would be truly alien. So astrobiology
0: is enjoying a boom for two reasons, an explosion of understanding around the extreme conditions life can survive under, and the increasingly frequent discoveries of planets orbiting other stars in the galaxy, as Lewis explains.
1: Well, the the massive growth industry at the moment, the the big increase in the field at the moment is with exoplanets or extrasolar planets. These are the worlds we're now discovering orbiting other stars, other suns in the galaxy. And there's various different techniques that you can use to infer or indirectly detect uh, an essentially invisible planet orbiting its sun. And this is right down to the nitty-gritty of astrophysics and you know, um, high-resolution spectro- spectrometers attached to telescopes to detect the ever-so subtle nuances of the starlight that get modified by the planet.
0: Is it just me, or are we seem seem to be finding exoplanets, new ones every day, new Earth-like planets in the newspapers every day?
1: Well, we haven't really found a, a, a true Earth-like planet just yet, and, and that still is um, still what we're striving for. That that will be the you know the the, the big announcement, hopefully, in the next next couple of years. Um, And mostly what we've been discovering so far have been big, fat planets orbiting more closely to the star, because those are the easiest ones to spot. But of course, Lewis's expertise is
0: in biology, not stars. So what I want to know is, what happens when an astrophysicist like Caleb comes to a biologist like Lewis with a new planet and asks, what are the chances for life here?
1: This, of course, brings us back to water. The, the major parameter that you care about for uh, any, any planet is whether it's got the right temperature regime on its surface to allow liquid water. Um, so you want to have a planet that orbits not too closely to its star. it's not too hot, but also not too far away and cold. You want something that orbits in the habitable zone or the Goldilocks zone around its star. So that's the, the kind of first and foremost characteristic you look for. And what we haven't discovered yet is an Earth-sized planet orbiting a Sun-like star in that habitable zone and, and that's that, that key combination of planet type and orbit around a, a Sun-like star that we're really kind of holding out for. And can you give us some
0: specific examples of locations on Earth?
1: Yeah so there's there's a whole field of study in terrestrial analog sites so pl- particular places, particular locations on Earth that for some reasons um, are very similar to, to places on other planets and a lot of places that are similar to Mars are the kind of terrestrial locations that I'm interested in for finding what kind of biology you, you get there and some of the most Mars-like places on earth are regions like the dry valleys in Antarctica which is one of the driest coldest deserts on the planet or places like the Atacama desert in, in kind of Chile and in Argentina which is also exceedingly dry and they're Mars-like in that respect but some of the main focus of my research is on radiation resistance how how organisms how biology on earth survives High levels of radiation, because that's a, a, a prime consideration, a primary hazard on Mars is the cosmic radiation. Because life on Earth is shielded from this radiation from outer space by a lovely thick atmosphere and a magnetic field that cocoons and, and shields our planet. But, but Mars doesn't get either of those. So if you are a Martian bacterium, a Martian microorganism, just in the kind of surface uh, soils, you're constantly being radiated radiation from outer space and, and trying to survive that is, a, is it going to be a hazard is it going to be a consideration for you
0: and are there any models on earth then that you can look to for that
1: well yeah there's there's bacteria there's micro microorganisms that can survive radiation doses thousands of times higher what, what would kill your eye and the the best example it's called dinococcus Radiogerans, not something that I'm growing on my lab bench at the moment. It's this beautiful, bright pink little colony of, of bacteria. And you've got it on your lab bench right now. Yeah, and I quite often will be cat when I'm doing my petri dish experiments and stick my thumb into the colonies and touch another agar plate and come back to a couple of days forgetting that it's now essentially contaminated and have my fingerprint laid out, the kind of ridges of my fingerprint laid out in these central pink colonies. So this, this is a really interesting organism to study because it can soak up the punishment of, of the radiation. It'll, its DNA, its genome, would have been shattered into hundreds of pieces and will patiently put together the jigsaw puzzle of its DNA and then get on with surviving. It's that kind of survival skill that life on Mars would need to, to tolerate today's conditions.
0: When it's not living on your lab bench, where does it normally live?
1: It was actually isolated back in the... It was first discovered back in the 1950s in cans of um, canned food that we still irradiate food to to sterilise it and make the the cans last longer. And yet these cans kept on going off and they could not work out what was going on because the radiation dose that had been delivered to that can should have killed any known life form on Earth and they isolated this dinococcus from it. But since then, it turns up um, in high radiation environments, artificial environments, like the cooling waters of nuclear power stations, but curiously also in very dry environments like the Atacama or um, the Dry Valleys that I study. And it turns out that this organism isn't strictly radiation resistant because it would never have been exposed to radiation levels in a natural environment that high. It's actually desiccation resistant. It's a desert living organism. And it so happens that being able to survive being dried out gives you the same skills you need to survive being radiated.
0: All this complex biology research is going on, while the search for exoplanets is scanning deeper into the universe than ever before, and scientists from all angles are becoming more and more specific in their areas of study. I'd imagine it must be pretty hard for researchers from such different fields to be able to work together. As director of an astrobiology institute, incorporating fields as diverse as planet formation and groundwater microbiology, Caleb's job depends on matchmaking.
2: Yeah, so it's very interesting. I think there are a number of things. At the simplest level, it turns out that scientists like to talk to each other. Really? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And particularly scientists from different fields, because you find stuff that you didn't know you're not afraid of asking stupid questions because you know, if someone's a biologist and I'm an astronomer you know, if I ask something really stupid it's it, it, okay, it doesn't go on my permanent record um, and so that's a lot of fun and I think everyone has the same sense of intrigue and wonder about you know, are we alone and that applies to biologists it applies to astronomers it applies to physicists, chemists you name it And so part of my job is to get people to talk to each other, get them together, but also to look for scientific um, areas of research where it's useful to have an astronomer and a biologist talk to each other. So, for example, as we're looking for planets and we're looking for environments that could support life, but aren't sort of Earth-type environment, it's important to understand the limits of biology as we understand it. I mean, that's a starting place. And it's important for the biologist to understand the possible environments out there. And so an astronomer or a planetary scientist can talk to a biologist and can exchange these ideas. And you come up very quickly with a strategy. Say, OK, this is the sort of thing we should look for first because, you know, the biology says this and the planetary science says this and so on. So it's that kind of uh, co-joined research that I really try to, to look for. I'm thinking of the microbiologist who's, who's spending her days
0: looking down a microscope, uh, studying an organism that, that she found in some extreme uh, acidic environment here on Earth. And, and then, on the other hand, her astronomer friend who's saying, oh, I've spotted a planet. How does this go into actual academic research?
2: We have microbiologists looking at what lives inside ice cores taken from a place like Antarctica, some of this is ice from deep down it's been isolated from the surface for a long time and the chemistry is kind of peculiar down there there's very little oxygen so things change
0: so an ice core is when you drill down really deep into the ice and you pull out a big tube of ice that uh, the, the further you go down it that's how that you know the older the ice is and therefore the older the stuff that's trapped in there right
2: Exactly, yeah, that's exactly right, and these cores can be lifted up um, very carefully so you don't contaminate them, Um, so you're not allowed to sneeze on them when they come up, they go into special protective sleeves, and they're frozen, refrozen, and so on. Now what's interesting about that is by studying what lives in those ice cores, or what tries to live in those ice cores, and um, how those organisms survive, we learn something that then you can take to an astronomer and say, well, we're interested in icy moons, for example. So in our own solar system, uh, there are many moons around giant planets that are coated in water ice. And Europa around Jupiter is a great example. And Enceladus around Saturn is another example. And there's been a long suspicion that because there's lots of water, and because if you go deep enough, it may get a bit warmer, those are potential habitats for life. But what's going to live there? Well, it might be the sorts of things that live deep in the ice of Antarctica. They might not be identical organisms, but the the speculation is that organisms on Earth have found certain chemical tricks to survive. Same chemical tricks might apply somewhere else in our solar system. Those chemical tricks leave behind traces. And so There you have a situation where the microbiologists and the astronomer or planetary scientists can really sit down and ask each other, well, what should I be looking for? And the question goes back and forth. And so then do they produce a research paper
0: looking at the... The microbiology of of the organism, uh, which is a, a thing that you know that they can look at that is tangible, and then producing lots of speculation from the astronomers' part uh, about various moons and planets where that could exist,
2: is is that the form that the research paper might take? Uh, that's the hope. Um, yeah, you know, it doesn't always end up as a research paper, but yeah, and I think increasingly it's possible to publish um, these sorts of papers that are a combination of scientific disciplines and there are now um, a number of respectable astrobiology journals.
0: So astrobiologists, whether they're more from the astro or the bio end of the spectrum, have been content if their collaborations end up in a scientific journal. But of course now, thanks to the frequent discovery of new planets and the ever so cautious hints of something very special indeed from the Curiosity rover on Mars, astrobiologists might have something else that would make them very happy. Just imagine it. Critters from another world. We're closing in on them. You can read the transcript for this podcast and visit links for further information at podacademy.org or join the discussion on Twitter at podacademy.